0: In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today.
2: Regardless of your situation, building and shaping life around something that isn't there that causes you pain just makes no sense. And it's something that I realised I was doing with a romantic love. I, w- I told myself from an early age that the point of life was to have a great love, and that great love would give shape to everything else that was going on in it.
1: Hi, and welcome to Alonement, the podcast about time alone and why it matters. I'm Francesca Spector, host of this podcast and author of Alonement, a book based on this very show. I'm also a reformed extreme extrovert who, a few years ago, discovered the life-changing benefits of spending time alone. Each week, I interview someone I'm curious about to discover what solo time means to them. In every conversation, we celebrate the unique benefits of time spent alone regardless of your age, life stage, or relationship status. Because when alone time isn't lonely, it's alonement. This week's guest on the podcast is poet and writer Amy Key. We're here to discuss her debut work of prose, Arrangements in Blue, Notes on Love and Making a Life, which is a memoir inspired by the work of Amy's beloved musical icon, Joni Mitchell. Aged 44, Amy has been single for 22 years. Her book challenges us to consider the claim that life can both be wonderful in the absence of romantic love and that it is yet still valid to want it. Described by The Guardian as a cathartic meditation on singledom, Arrangements in Blue is a book that reflects on the universal question of what makes a life rich and whole in a way that resonates no matter what your relationship status. It is also a nuanced discussion of different kinds of alonement, from the luxury of living alone, and it's worth mentioning, Amy speaks to me from her flat in London, where the walls are painted a gorgeous shade of pink, and there's a piano and her books in the backdrop, to the highs and lows of solo travel. I hope you enjoy listening. This season is brought to you by West Lab, the UK's number one trusted bath salt brand. Their best-selling Dead Sea Bath Salt range contains minerals that come from the famous waters themselves. Fun fact, it's actually a lake, not a sea, that's found in the lowest point of the earth and was the world's first spa, visited by Cleopatra herself. Dead Sea Salt is a skin hero containing a unique blend of magnesium, calcium and potassium, which is brilliant for protecting and repairing your skin barrier and managing conditions like eczema, psoriasis, acne and sensitive skin, together with soothing any aching muscles. I'm also kind of in love with magnesium for its mood balancing qualities. It's nice to think that your mind and body are being looked after while you're soaking there in the tub. West Lab Dead Sea Bath Salts are vegan, cruelty-free and suitable for the whole family. Use the code alonement 15 for 15% off when you spend £10 or more. T's and C's in the show notes. Amy Key, it is so wonderful to have you on the podcast. Honestly, I got the press release about your book and I just thought, right, well, this is an easy decision. Absolutely <laughs> perfect, perfect guest for... Everything this show represents on celebrating time alone and the value in that, regardless of your life stage. If you know, your background, you've been single for 22 years and mm. you've built a life that many people would envy. It's full of love of all kinds and creative fulfillment in your career as a poet and the writer of this incredible memoir. Just, I think, a life led really beautifully, which I sort of fell in love with. And I'm honestly going to be resisting the urge to quote you back to yourself constantly. So sorry, (laughs) that will inevitably happen uh, during this conversation. Ahead of this recording, Mm. you told me that the word alone for you means attuned. I I mean, I like the musical resonance in a book, as we'll talk about, that's sort of inspired by Joni Mitchell. But first, I'd love to start the conversation there. Why did you choose the word attuned? Attuned. I hadn't even thought about that musical resonance. That's so nice.
2: I think it's always nice when there's those kind of happy accidents in the way that you've been thinking about something. Attuned was the word that immediately came to mind because there's something for me, maybe perhaps the thing that I treasure most about the time I spend alone, which is a sense of settling into my own um You know, the feeling in my body, the kind of quietness that settles in that allows me to listen a bit to what I'm thinking, feeling, processing, interacting with the world around me. So I really love it when, say, I have a lovely day out with some friends. And then the next morning when I'm alone, I can have this period of like quiet reflection where I feel there's a clarity that is coming to me in that time alone. I'm attuned, if you like, to how I really feel. There's no interference that is kind of affecting the signals that I'm sending myself. I'm making it sound like I'm making a radio program, aren't I? (laughs) It's like this sort of clarity and Trust that I know how I'm feeling, and I think for periods of time in my life I felt a bit dislocated from how I was feeling and and not able to embody it. But as I've grown older and I've come to appreciate time spent alone a lot more, now I feel there's this kind of tuning into to to me.
1: And has alone time always held that power? I don't think it
2: necessarily has because it's probably represented different things at different points in my life. So I grew up with four siblings. So there's five kids that are, you know, pretty close in age, quite a raucous home environment because of that. Being alone was something that rarely happened. And I think there was a kind of sense of. Wanting to kind of escape the, 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 the hurdy burly, if you like, of that environment at times when I was younger. But I rejected being alone a lot too. I thought that being alone wasn't something that you would make a positive choice to do and that perhaps it suggested something about you, you know, that you weren't desirable or people didn't want to spend time with you. So I haven't always felt like this and I feel like I've had opportunities, if you like, to kind of practice being alone so that it now is much more fulfilling to me and I'm not frightened of it.
1: Your book is structured around Joni Mitchell's album Blue, with each chapter a response to one of its songs. What made you choose this initially as a sort of scaffolding for the way it's written?
2: It's probably two things. The first is the point at which I encountered Joni Mitchell's album Blue. I was a a teenager and I felt like I was delivered this potent bolt of feminine wisdom from Joni Mitchell in the songs in this album. And I was at an age where I really needed that. I was beginning to find my way into the world, make decisions about the sort of person I wanted to be and the experiences I wanted to have. So it was a formative age. And so the the album played a role, I think, in that forming and has been the touchstone for me as I've gone through my life. Those songs have always accompanied me like a friend might, but also I was trying to write about the kind of stigma and shame that I had felt about not having romantic love in my life in this sense of being on my own or a single person and not finding a partner, which is what we're socialized and how culture kind of shapes us to desire that and to see that as a lifelong goal and so if you fail in finding a romantic other and you're alone a lot of what you're kind of exposed to is really negative connotations of of that because you know to be not loved romantically is to be rejected in some ways and to feel shut out of all of the ways in which Life tells you that you're progressing through it in the right way, making a home with somebody, having a family, making a commitment like a, like a marriage. And I realized that my feelings about that were, there was a lot in it and almost too much. And in order to kind of marshal my emotional engagement with, with that and my, my feelings and experiences, I needed a framework because otherwise it would be too unruly and I might end up not focusing in on the big questions. I think that you might have when you're trying to find a way to make life alone. And so using Joni's album blue as a, as a framing device that allowed me to explore different dimensions of a life that's largely lived alone or at least on elements of life that I wanted to question. I wanted to question whether all of the kind of assumptions I'd made about them not being accessible to me were true. And I wanted to really interrogate what was present in my life and find what was meaningful in that, in different dimensions of the home, family,
1: travel, desire, intimacy, and so on. You've basically fed me one of the questions I was about to ask through that idea of that structure because I and I I really relate to this as a single person you write about the presumed transitions that come with heteronormative romantic life like sharing a home and raising a family and how Mm -hmm. that kind of in a in a different sort of memoir maybe that would create its own narrative itself and of course they aren't the only monumental things that happen in a life but they're just mm. the ones that we've sort of agreed on societally and you describe it beautifully as a sort of a scaffold that structures life and this is one of those occasions where I'm going to have to quote you back to yourself because your words are just so beautiful here but you say in the absence of romantic love and the arrangements of and official transitions it can impose, there is some figuring out to do about what shape to give life and how to care for and love that life. In what way has that served you positively in life, having to create that structure for yourself, whether it's in writing a memoir or indeed living that life? Such an
2: interesting question that I don't think I've ever asked my, myself. I wonder whether... It's made me, I wonder whether it's enabled me to have a healthy questioning of uh, the things we're told are supposed to be valuable. So, for example, I've got several younger friends and sometimes our conversations will be, I haven't done X or I haven't done Y and I'm going to be 30 next year and I'm somehow behind. And it's, it's behind by whose authority, you know, questioning that authority of what we're supposed to do in what order and why that should give us legitimacy. If I think back to say my mother, my mum had me when she was 30. I was her fourth child. Now, did, do I want to be a 30 year old with four children? Because that's what my mother did. Absolutely not. Part of me thinks, wow, how did she do that? And I think it's really useful just to question the timetable that other people have lived by in the past or choose to live by now, because all of us, all of our circumstances and situations and desires and wants are unique. I think it's helpful to sometimes ask yourself when you feel like you haven't attained a goal or met a life milestone, but is that what I want? Or am I feeling bad because I feel like I've been told to want it and I'm judging myself against that standard, even though I don't believe in it? I don't feel like marriage is something that I am particularly interested in, but I do want a romantic relationship that is really fulfilling and gives me joy and pleasure and security and comfort and the opportunity for collaboration. But I think in our society, in our culture, we're told that unless you make it official, somehow that relationship is not as legitimate or serious or um, stable as, as one where people are doing that. And I just think it's really useful for us all to have a healthy skepticism about those things and ask ourselves, is that still, is that what I think? Is that, is it better that as a society, we challenge those things more widely? Because things like marriage, it's like a, a patriarchal tool and a thing that the state wants to keep for various reasons. But why should that be for everybody? And why should that be the kind of default, the default
1: um, romantic relationship arrangement? Yeah, yeah. I think that even if you can't question that for yourself, I think having being able to read a memoir like yours and be able to explore these questions is so beneficial. The way that your book is marketed is hinged on the fact that you've lived a period of your life single, but mm. this isn't just a single person's guide towards the beginning, actually. And I think for me, this, this seems like a really important thread running through. You encourage readers to consider what a life would look like if it wasn't centered around romantic love. And you say, even though it's more unusual to live outside of the bounds of romantic relationships than it is to live within them, I feel like it could be valuable to us all to think about the ways in which we can create good lives without expecting romantic love to do the work Mm. could you maybe suggest some ways in which a person who is in a long-term relationship could then go on to learn from this memoir so I guess
2: one of the really interesting things for me in terms of the response to the book is how many people have contacted me to say I don't Share your experience. I'm married or I've got a long term romantic partner, but some of this really resonated for me. And I think the thing sometimes that is resonating for people who haven't got the same experience as me is this idea that life is built, you, you, you end up building a life around something you don't have and it ends up making you feel bad all the time. So for some people, that might be a longed for child that doesn't isn't possible in their life, or it might be, say, a relationship with a parent that um, isn't giving them the love and support that they need, or it could be something that they just really wanted to do and pursue, but they haven't been able to due to their life circumstances or their economic status. And I think Regardless of your situation, building and shaping life around something that isn't there, that causes you pain, just makes no sense. And it's something that I realized I was doing with romantic love. I you know, told myself from an early age that the point of life was to have a great love, and that great love would give shape to everything else that was going on in it. And that was probably a very naive kind of ambition that I I started off with. But it's not that that was all in my head. Society definitely conspires to say that that is going to be the most central thing in your life and you're almost an incomplete person until romantic love makes you whole. What I would say to somebody who is in a relationship who might able to take something from my book, It, it would be to consider all of the ways in which love is present in their life and value those alongside their romantic relationship and consider why should they be subservient to the romantic relationship. And that might be investing and nurturing friendships that offer them something alongside their romantic relationship that they really need. And I just think through doing that, you can enrich all of your relationships, not just the romantic one or not just the platonic one. If we get better, I think, at at loving and appreciating what is present in our lives rather than focusing on what is absent, that to me feels like it could be really transformative. And it's what I hope will be transformative for me. So that say, if I were to enter a romantic relationship, a committed romantic relationship, I would really have clarity on the role that that was playing in my life and not just be pursuing it because I felt like it might fix something in me that was broken or that society told me must must be broken because I'm alone you know in air quotes and alone being this kind of abject state because I now know that being alone is not an abject state and I kind of reject that and I even reject the idea of defining by relationship status at all I reject this word
1: single because it's sort of meaningless to me in some ways yeah I'd love to know more about that label and why you reject it It might just be
2: because the idea of a single woman has so many associated tropes. You know, I'm thinking about in culture of the kind of hapless best friend who's unlucky in love, just always trying to secure a romantic partner or, you know, to reach my life stage. So I'm going to be 45 next month, which feels really horrifying. And to be a middle-aged single woman when you become, you become a bit more invisible in culture. You're not considered young and sexy and desirable. And also you're considered, you know, post, post children, if you like, and less useful in that regard. Part of that rejection of the word single is definitely a, a reaction to negative portrayals of A singlehood in culture but it's also a rejection of any type of definition by romantic status because I just find it odd. I do wonder sometimes whether people in relationships might also find it odd that they're just considered a unit, a kind of homogenous unit who don't have their individual viewpoints or desires because everything is done for the benefit of the, the two or the couple. I'm not sure if I was in a relationship, how I'd feel about ticking the box that says with a partner or married or, or, or whatever, because I, I, I'm not sure I buy that people should
1: be defined in that way. Yeah. But it reminds me a bit of the conversation around feminism and how that's developed over the years because initially it was like there was this sense that oh feminism was standing up for the marginalized group right Mm. i I think as a single person i i know that we both have recognized that there are ways in which you are marginalized even if Mm. it's just on holiday where as you write about in one part of your book you go go to the pool and there's all these these you know the sunbeds are all placed two together and i think the narrative with singleness is that up until now perhaps that oh it's just about defending the state of being single and being mm. able to be triumphantly positively single yeah yeah yay and and now i think it's actually become more of a conversation around actually like how men have been able to question their perception of masculinity under the patriarchy mm. people in relationships are actually questioning the boxes that they're being put into mm. by this labeling as well it works both ways and historically there's been the sense that only it was only just about defending the marginalized group but now we're actually realizing it can benefit us all and i think your, your book is part of that
2: i hope so i hope it can contribute to that to that conversation I've certainly thought a lot more about how single people are sort of made to feel unwelcome in, in the space of like leisure and pleasure, just by things like tables for two and the sun lounger situation when you're on a holiday that you've gone on, you've had the courage to go on, on your own, but you're very visibly alone in those contexts and it can be quite hard sometimes to I don't want to say like keep your chin up because like obviously it's a great privilege to go on holiday but it can be hard to be subject to the visibility of being single. And like on my last trip, someone came up to me just a few minutes after I
1: plushcare.com slash weight loss
2: sat down on a sun lounger you know just ordered my drink got my book out and she said oh uh, my partner and i have spotted you and are you alone and i said oh yes i'm alone and she sort of made a sad face and she said oh you know if you get lonely you can come and hang out with us, which I understand was a kindness on her part, but I did feel incredibly embarrassed about it because she she sort of had this conversation in the earshot of everybody. And I think the assumption that she'd made was that I would be sad and lonely, whereas I was on holiday and I was delighted to be on holiday on my own with days ahead of me of swimming and eating
1: nice food and reading the novels that I brought with me. It reminds me, I I once had a similar situation where I was in Italy, uh, in Florence, enjoying pasta in the, uh, in, uh, the inside of a restaurant. And it was quite a warm day. So there was a couple sitting outside through the glass on the other side. And I was honestly, I was, I had a mouthful of pasta. I was reading a book. I was, I, I was drinking a glass of wine. I can't imagine a more blissful situation. And I, again, it was very well meaning, but this woman started sort of banging on the, on the window. <laughs> and thankfully, you know, hand gestures are, are, are just accepted language in Italy. So I sort of gave a sort of wave of appreciation, but mm. thanks, but no. I guess it hasn't become, it's, it's the lack of social normalization sometimes. And it can be quite hard. And I think. I, I mean, I really like, uh, you, you have a chapter devoted to solo travel, uh, in your book. And one of the things you, you do say is that there are no, well, there are, there are few models to look for when looking for traveling alone mm. inspiration. Part of me does think that this does come down to capitalism because it's, it's more profitable for a couple or a family mm. to be away, less so for a solo traveler. But one of your solutions to this, you invented this persona of the (laughs) self-possessed solo traveller woman, which I love. I'm going to go out there and be the self-possessed solo (laughs) traveller woman. But you say, I am undeterred. Each solo trip provides another chance to play that part right. I wonder, have you discovered any more models for doing so? One
2: thing that I've really loved, actually, is I've noticed more and more of my friends having trips on their own too and then we can all sort of compare notes afterwards and get a sense of you know what feels good what doesn't feel good did this place work is this place a good place to holiday alone in and I think it sounds really cheesy but if I could do like one really nice outcome of this book is that people would design the holidays they really want to go on on their own, that would be a really great thing because holiday time is so precious and it's expensive. And sometimes we can find ourselves doing things we don't really want to do because we're we're having to compromise, for example. And actually a, a holiday alone is an invitation to not have to compromise at all, other than your budget, which is obviously a a big consideration.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I mean, one hopes that the supply follows the demand here because solo travel is statistically on the rise.
2: Yeah. And I would love, you know, restaurants to have really cute little tables for one where there isn't this big performance of taking away the other cutlery and glassware on the table, which is what happens when you sit down, is the first thing that happens, and it, that can really um, set the tone for. Oh, okay, you're on. You're on your own. We're going to withdraw these things. We're taking away. It's kind of this symbolic act. Whereas if you sat down at a table made for one, that would just be a really delightful thing. You would feel immediately that you were welcome here
1: and you were being catered for as you. Hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I hope that the future is bright there. And I think, again, it's a thread through your book, but that idea of owning your desires and and solo travel being a space where you learn to, uh, and I'm quoting you here, make your own rules for pleasure and Mm. speak up very directly, identify and pursue your desires because no one else will advocate for you. I'd love to hear in the name of inspiring others as well, some of the realizations that you've come to about what you actually want from a holiday when you're going about it's holidaying solo. So maybe I'll come back to that word I used at the beginning, attuned. You know, I
2: think when you spend time alone, you, one of the benefits can be this real attuning to, to what you need and want. Um, and I think when I first began to travel solo, I had this kind of template for what a holiday should involve and, that wasn't really attuned to what I needed and wanted. So now I know that I really like to travel with certain things that I bring from home that can make me feel really cozy and comfortable wherever I am. So that's an important thing for me. Like what do you bring? Well, I take my own coffee pot and my own coffee and my own mug because I just I've got, you know, the perfect formula for me in the morning. Which is, you know, precisely the right amount of coffee at the right strength. And and then that sets me up for the day. I like to have a very kind of gentle, elaborate lunch with lots of swimming either side. And I like to go to bed early when I'm on holiday and I kind of go and eat early in the restaurant and then I come away and we'll read and I I had this very sort of old like old person like my grandmother timetable so I get up early I have this um, large lunch I go to bed early and I eat early and I, I feel like that's kind of almost the opposite of what I thought My holidays would be like if I was traveling with someone else where it would probably be the reverse, like getting up late, staying out late. And actually, for me, being away is about rest and relaxation rather than adventure and really going for it. But it took me a while to work that out.
1: For some people, they would never work that out because if you get married early or even if you get just married before that age where you're able to sort of even address what you want, because I don't know about you, but I I found before I was 30, like honestly, before this decade, like I didn't ever think I didn't, I wasn't able to in group scenarios or in relationship scenarios, even entertain the possibility that I might want something a bit different. I mean, I am living in Lisbon right now. Uh, for a couple of months, I hate eating dinner at ten o'clock. I I, I like eating dinner at six o'clock. You know, yeah. I think that's wonderful. <laughs> yeah, I, but um, I think I would really
2: struggle with the the um Central European eat eating times for sure. And I really identify too with that sense of like not really knowing what I wanted, and a lot of that was to do with. Most of my holidays before I decided to travel alone were spent with my family, with small children, and I really loved spending time with them, but it wasn't really a holiday. It was a lot of it felt like domestic work and making decisions for the broader group, which sometimes I'm really happy to do, but other times I just want to look after myself.
1: I absolutely get that. I don't know what it is, but group dynamics can be wonderful, but also very tiring constantly balancing those needs I think it when you travel
2: in groups you really have to invest a lot in the planning and the communication and a kind of having setting boundaries I guess with the people that you're with about what you'll do together what you might do apart and as a person who always needs a bit of alone time (laughs) to like recover I've been in situations where people have felt hurt that I might want to Withdraw and spend an hour on my own, for example, because some people isn't part of
1: how they live, and and they can feel rejected by it. Absolutely. I mean, I think you're basically summarising why I felt the need to invent the word "alone month" literally just to define. Like, I'm off to have some insert alone month here because it's just not really factored into the schedules, is it? And it's such a it's such a great
2: thing to create these. Ways of expressing time spent alone in a positive way and showing and talking about how it can be really pleasurable or just necessary to recalibrate
1: one's brain in a quite complex and noisy world. So I think I might be adopting your holiday schedule to begin with. And so I'm going to move on to something else, which sounds quite gentle and lovely, which is your basically how you describe self care as a single person in this book, because you express that there's a view sometimes that as a single person without children, you can live without boundaries. And you do refer to your mentor, the late Scottish poet, Roddy Lumsden, mm-hmm. who passed away in 2020, and, and perhaps we'll speak about a little bit later, but you you spoke about how that was a view of his that you can and, and should live without Boundaries as someone who is able to. Could you tell me the ways in which you feel differently about that and why it's important to you to live in a perhaps more regulated way than you perhaps could get away with as a single person practicing self care? So I I feel like it was really important for me
2: to understand the things that I do or the way that I structure my day to best build and conserve my energy to enjoy life. And I guess the things that I realised were when I overfill my diary, for example, that makes me feel quite stressed out and I can get socially burnt out, which I, I find difficult to recover from. Going to bed even an hour or two later than I normally do can really affect my ability to get things done the next day and do the things that I need to do, limiting the days that I have alcohol on and things like that have been really important for me just to function in a, in a positive way. I think sometimes when you're single, people in relationships can project some stuff onto you about. How you can just do what you want and you don't have responsibilities and you don't have commitments. So you can sort of live in this adolescent way that you might have done in your late teens when you can go out all the time and not worry too much about stuff. But I'm saying absolutely that isn't, that isn't the case. (laughs) There are commitments I make to myself about how I'm going to live so that I, can enjoy my days and get the work done that I need to do and fulfil my commitments to people and um, maintain the friendships that I need to maintain and put loving care into my family, etc. So that's what um, I found in terms of creating like a framework for living. And it's not um, anything sort of puritanical or rigid but I kind of am attuned to what I need to do to feel like me. And that will include retreating, having regular time alone, having a
1: stable pattern of when I get up and go out and all of these sorts of things. Thank you for advocating for that, because I don't know, there's just uh, something that really rankles with me about the idea that you'll delay that those things that sort of naturally happen to us as we, you know, as we get older, that appreciation for, for bedtimes, because bedtimes are great. And I, I hate this notion that you have to be with someone or on a certain path in order to reap the benefits of that. And, and I've never actually thought about it that way, how it can be sort of a projection. But it makes me think about the the joke, how Parents quite often and, and quite rightfully, but parents when they have a babysitter, they're the most drunk people at the party because they can do it's. It's very funny, and I, you know, and I love that for them, and I love that as an idea. But it's really also nice to think that you can you can be the one looking after yourself as as a single person. You don't have to. It doesn't just have to be something that's imposed on you by a certain punctuation mm. in life.
2: Yeah, you, I think you expressed it far more eloquently than
1: I did not. I did not. We can argue about that another time. <laughs> I wanted to get on to. So you speak about your mentor Roddy Lemstone in mm. uh, in the book. It's a really beautiful sounding relationship. You describe yourself as platonic friends with benefits, which and I love that the benefits when you actually speak about them are the benefits that God. I, I think that most most people actually would want rather than rather than the sex you say that you have the benefits of cooking together and having a sort of quasi-domestic setup Mm -hmm. together as you did and that time at the weekends and I I think it's a really beautiful relationship that you've depicted so firstly thank you for sharing uh, that memory um, in in your book and he passed away in January 2020 there was a Aspect of him where, where you write, he wanted romantic salvation. And you say that more than once he said to me, it was only real love that would make him live. And that weighed on me heavily. And later you write, his only religion was romantic love. I wonder, was was his passing, did it make you think at all about this romantic love that you've thought about a lot during your life? Did it sort of change your perspective or even make more important your mission? with this book of of looking beyond that romantic love and knowing it's important to know that life can work with or without it.
2: Yeah, thank you for, for talking about Roddy. Part of why he's such a central character in the book is I really would have loved him to believe that there was more worth living for than romantic love. But I did not know how to persuade him of that. I wanted to pay tribute to our relationship and our friendship, which was not a romantic relationship, but as you say, had this kind of, these kind of romantic elements. It had things within it that are often present in domestic romantic relationships and Almost ask why, why aren't relationships like that afforded the same gravity and the same respect and recognition that romantic ones are? Because I certainly felt that that was a big love for me. You know, there's a big important relationship in my life that is just as Glorious and messy is any romantic failed relationship that somebody might talk about, you know, of their big ex that is one of the major events that they have experienced. I, I just wonder, I don't know whether Roddy would have lived if he had had the romantic relationship that he so desperately wanted and thought that would save him. I don't know whether romantic love would have saved Roddy, but I think his faith in that and his acknowledgement that romantic love hadn't happened for me, which is something that he said to me motivated me to explore that more because I didn't want to, I didn't want to get to the end of my life having never really questioned it and explored it and interrogated whether that was true for me. So he kind of helped me confront a lot of the stuff that I'd left unsaid about romantic love. He made it feel like it was absolutely vital for my own creation of meaning in my life that I explored it properly.
1: That you could look beyond that as well.
2: Absolutely. Yeah. That's what I've kind of found for myself. But I don't know if I would have had that clarity
1: had I hadn't had that encounter with Roddy. Thank you for sharing that. And I think, ironically, to use this term, but you know, I I think that your book is, it's a love letter. And it's a gift, not just to him, but to so many people rushing out to buy your book, having already read your book. It spoke so much to me. And it made me I don't know. I think that art of all kinds, you know, from Joni Mitchell's album Blue to, to this memoir, I think it's so hard to believe that a life can be meaningful and rich beyond or outside of romantic love. And I think that art is one of the only means by which I won over time after time into believing that. So thank you for distilling that in the pages, because I think that the richness of your experience in every chapter really really comes through there and you finish the book by writing out a list of wants and initially you i think you were asked by a therapist to write your your wants from romantic love but in this list of wants you do it not just from romantic love but from life as a whole and it it makes for wonderful reading you know, everything you list and anything you do and it's a lot of revelations about being able to include all the things, all the lessons you've learned, like maintaining a wonderful, ordered home, having other kinds of love in your life. A lot of things that constitute a rich life. And maybe I'm personally projecting here from my own experience, but I think the reason I found it so powerful is because that being single for longer than you'd like, it can so often be accompanied by a feeling that you should ask for less, not more, in the way Someone probably an elderly relative will unhelpfully tell you to um lower your standards or mm-hmm. advise you to stop being so picky at one of those uh one of those family gatherings i wonder and and I wonder because it's a fear shared by at least some people listening to this who are either single or looking to leave a bad romantic relationship in the hope of a more satisfying one. Does any part of you deep down worry that you're asking for too much in Listing out those desires.
2: I think the thing with sort of stating these, these desires for, for what I would like to kind of hold in my life is that inevitably there are times when things are going to fall short. But I think it's so important to express them because that helps, that helps me keep a focus on the things that I want particularly in my situation where I felt I've so often tried to feed myself with crumbs of romance, reminding myself that I don't have to accept that, reminding myself that life can be really good alone. It's just such an important thing for me to just come come back to. So even if I don't get those things, at least I know what I'm aiming for. Whereas previously, I I didn't even ask myself what I wanted, let alone state it. So when people would say to me, you're being too picky or you need to lower your standards, I didn't even know what my standards were. In fact, I probably had no standards. I don't think I've ever felt really deserving of love. And writing a list of the things that I feel I want is my kind of way of... Beginning to feel entitled to it in the same way that other people might. And I, I just think that it can be really hard when you're, you're single because sometimes people in relationships will say to me, Oh, you're really idealistic about love. And, you know, all love takes work as though I have a very kind of naive view of what loving relationships entail. But I really reject that because I've got plenty of loving relationships and know very well the type of nurturing and care and attention that you have to give to them to make them good. And from those relationships, I've learned the type of things that I think are okay and not okay. So why would I feel any differently about a romantic relationship to the ones that I cherish
1: in my non-romantic life? And finally, Amy, what's your favorite kind of alonement? Is it is it a cheat to say
2: it's some it's when my cat might come and lie down on the
1: bed with me and have a little nap? I mean, I feel like the sort of Desert Island Discs host at the end where you decide whether you're cheating or not. I think that I'm very jealous you have a cat to begin with. So I don't want that bias to skew things. i'd say it's either it's either
2: that or it's the time that i spend first thing in the morning when i get up and i make my coffee and it's the time i usually do a bit of writing and i have this lovely unruffled brain and none of the day is crowded in yet with its demands and and worries and it feels like a really precious time that i personally look forward to to so knowing that Every morning I get that space just, just to be with my thoughts. And the cat is optional. The cats, I, I mean, I, they live here, <laughs> so it's very hard. They might come and say hi.
1: That was such a beautiful conversation. I really encourage you to read Amy's book, Arrangements in Blue, which is out now, published in both the UK and the US. As ever, do go ahead and share this episode with anyone in your life that you think might benefit from listening. If you haven't already, you can also stay connected with me and my writing by signing up to my weekly newsletter at francescaspector.substack.com. Hold
0: up!